Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 15, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Martin Luther King would have been 90 years old today. As far as the Article 5 convention watch goes, we're, we're needing to keep watching the judiciary in the Senate today. William Barr has already said something quite amazing. He can't really even interpret what the emolument clause means in the Constitution. And Twitter and everybody is all over that. Today, my first guest is going to be Wiley Aitken, Orange County trial lawyer and local rainmaker in political, cultural, and educational realms to ponder the very interesting developments afoot in our local body politic. Then Jennifer Boyton, labor leader and journalist, will talk about her role as an organizer of this year's Orange County Women's March. She'll let us know what to expect as the third annual taking place in Santa Ana this Saturday, January 19th. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you for staying tuned, everyone. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Returning to Ask a Leader after several years is my first guest, Orange County trial attorney and local rainmaker, Kingmaker Wiley Aitken, bringing his insight into the Orange County body politic in these most interesting of times. He's founding partner and CEO of the firm Aitken Aitken Cone in Santa Ana. He was the youngest ever president in the history of the state trial bar and serves on the Federal Judiciary Advisory Committee, which recommends the appointment of federal district court judges and U.S. attorneys. Federal Court J Judge James Selna appointed him to be liaison to all state and other federal actions regarding one of the largest uh, the MDLs in history and assigned to the Southern Division of the Central District Court of California. Wiley Aitken's numerous high-profile multi-million dollar cases read like an Orange County suburban noir novel. As a consumer advocate, he's developed bilingual consumer protection brochures, brochures on lawyer selection, and he's served on college and charitable foundation boards and selection select commissions involving justice issues such as court congestion and justice facilities. I want to break down what those affiliations with the, where he's been serving, and they include the Board of Trustees of Chapman University, the Board for the Democratic Foundation of Orange County, the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts, South Coast Repertory, and Mission San Juan Capistrano, to name a few. He's published articles in numerous law reviews and legal publications and serves on the Jefferson's California Evidence Benchbook Editorial Board. Listeners may have heard him on radio and television programs such as Larry King Live, Inside Edition, Michael Jackson Show, KABC, Ron Owens, OC, and Primetime Co. KOCE, Real Orange, to name a few. Now he's here with us. 
He's a second generation Irish American whose mother's family hails from County Cork, and that puts him on uh, the founding as the founding member and past president of the Celtic Bar Association. Wiley Aitken completed his undergraduate work at Santa Ana College in Cal State Fullerton, then his Juris Doctor from Marquette University, where he was a St. Thomas More Scholar and Associate Editor of the Marquette Law Review, and now serves on the Marquette Law School Advisory Board. Wiley Aitken joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Wiley Aitken. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. My mother could never have done as well as you did, Claudia. Well, no, no, mother. I'm never. No, mothers have pole <laughs> position and they never leave it. So, though I think I'd uh, rather be described as a queen maker, by the way. A queen, and well, and that that is in like the uh, seventh question. We're going to get to the queen maker. So it's good to know. Well, first, I'd like to just have you sort of sit back and think about what was it like at the Aitken compound as results rolled in sometimes ever so slowly after the midterm elections? Uh, well, it was uh, very interesting. Uh, and of course, uh, as Tom Umberg said the other night, uh, uh, Successful state Senate candidate. Yes, and uh, but uh, for many of us, uh, the um, uh, election night was highly unusual because nothing got decided on election night and everything started getting decided uh, day after day after day. So it was a... Uh, very interesting experience. The Aiken compound had to eventually go to bed with lots of unanswered questions. Lots of them. Well, I, I made a choice of going to the 48th congressional campaign of uh, Harley Rudas. I thought that was going to be the one that was going to be the trend was going to be sort of evident. So that that might have been the only one that was it was close. He was ahead on that night. I think everybody else was. Except for the, the Mike Levin was a uh, was well ahead, but right. so it was. But the trends were were not so obvious in most of the other races. I think, you, as you were saying, right. That's for that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I'd like to know um, how enduring do you think these outcomes will be from the midterm twenty eighteen? Well, I'll get directly to that answer. Yes, I think the, they will be enduring. I think in the Levin situation. Uh, and I think that one is the one that will probably be considered so-called safe seat if there is such a thing for a Democrat in Orange County. Um, well, and that includes also San Diego County. So yes, it does. That dynamic. Uh, no, I think as for the other three, I think they can be very enduring based on two simple premises. Really? Uh, number one, that they work really, really hard and come back every weekend. I went through this with Loretta Sanchez in 1996. When people ask the same question, how enduring is Loretta's victory over Bob Dornan? Uh, what Loretta did was she came back every weekend. She set up uh, tables in malls. She did cus uh, constituent services, uh, helped people with their problems, was everywhere to be seen every weekend, every weekend, every weekend. And with the Congress, you start running for re-election 15 minutes after you've been elected. 15 minutes before. <laughs> that's probably that's the very wise candidate. Maybe even a year before, okay, uh, yes. but you don't have that anymore. Nope. Uh, so now you're right to, to work. And so number one, that's the, the the focus. And the second focus, frankly, is uh, something that they cannot possibly control, uh, which is the continued marvelous performance of President Trump, uh, and the fact that he will be play a major major role as to holding these seats. If he continues to be the president he's been for the last two years, then I think he will contribute 
strongly to the reelection of the three Democrats in Orange County. Well, another aspect uh, you're talking about being visible with one's constituents and the the path to the candidate, as far as like a member of the press is concerned, it's a whole new experience that they are responsive, they're available. It's it, I, I had to work so hard to get any kind of a, a connection with some of the other incumbents. So it's just just that alone, that sort of uh, structural change is very palpable. Oh, there's no question. I mean, they have to be out there. So when I talk about constituents, absolutely, when I talk about being in the malls. When I talk about being home every weekend, working hard, 24 hours uh, a day, all virtually. Um, then, of course, being out there means also being out there for the media and being out there to right. be interviewed and be out there to answer questions. Those who sat in safe seats felt not to be accountable to anyone. Uh, they felt they could uh, sit and enjoy the cocktail parties back in D.C. Uh, and not have to be concerned about their reelection. Now that whole situation has changed. So, yes, they have to be out there in every aspect of what we would call uh, politics. So I'd like to pivot then. That's We're sort of talking about the national level when we talk about congressional candidates. And you've had a lot to say, and there has been some very, very many interesting kinds of developments on the local government level. And you've written a few articles about that. I want to start out with the, the general about democracy and local government. We have some structural features that may have contributed, and you tell us what, to what extent you think they did, with districts in Anaheim and in and more so how it affected the city of Costa Mesa's council races. Well, they say, as you know, the old saying, Claudia, that all politics is local, uh, and, and nothing's more local than local. Right. And uh, so let me make a couple of comments about what people sometimes don't think about. Uh, on the district issue, I'm a supporter of district elections. Uh, we have adopted them in Anaheim. Uh, we thought that would be a major step forward. Uh, it's a half step forward. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the way elections are set up locally, a lot of mischief can go on. In other words, when we're having a district election and you have a one-time election uh, and you're not gonna have any kind of runoff like you do in other elections, uh, it creates a real significant problem. In other words, every uh, political consultant has figured out that if you have a local election, even if it's district, you can control that district by running fake candidates or faux candidates. Uh, stealth candidates that, used to call them, stealth, but, but they're stealth, different. Uh, and, uh, and, and manipulate the, the election. Uh, if you see a strong Democrat running, you find some unknown Democrat, you finance that Democrat, create them as a candidate, knowing full well they can't win, and use them solely for the purpose from drawing away from the other Democrat. Uh, you can run all kinds of people with similar names. So a lot goes on, but would be eliminated to a large degree if we take the next step, which is the top two candidates should then do a runoff like they did. Yes. Like it happened in the congressional elections. And I think you'll see dramatically different results. The second issue is that people are going to have to get more engaged. They think that local elections is very simple. They don't pay a lot of attention to it. It doesn't get all the publicity that national elections do and other kinds of elections uh, come up with. And so you have to be very careful that people get engaged with it. And we're going to have to do something about the dark money in politics. We are. We're going to get to that. But I, the, the with the districts, I mean, I'm thinking 
because I'm personally acquainted with uh, a few of the candidates in Costa Mesa, and they felt like they could connect with those households, and that would, if pardon the, the 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 word, the verb Trump is is, is just totally ruined from now on. But but the personal encounter of candidate with local government constituent is very. Uh, it's the imprinting there is enduring and well say endearing too so that it, that could take eliminate the some of the hazards of what we're going to talk about in terms of distortions with communications in the campaign yeah there's no question about that i mean the ability to actually walk and have a field operation and meet people uh is a lots of traction in that significant help but when you get into a city like anaheim for instance where you have very large districts and a large population it has a major impact, and it can make a difference. Uh, but money can also make an equal amount of difference. And also people who are funded to knock on doors. Um, I could tell you just a quick story where I knocked on doors for my daughter in Anaheim who was running for mayor, and I came across, and I will not name him, but a registered reporter you would think would be knowledgeable about what was going on. And uh, he had a whole different impression of the election than the reality was. Spent about five minutes with him and explained to him all of the things that he had read in, in these flyers. That was mm -hmm. his whole total knowledge of the candidates based on how other people were characterizing them. Uh, so knocking on doors is very, very helpful. And that, in that case, I turned him around. But, you know, there's only so many doors you can knock on and there's only so many personal contact in a large district. Uh, it is obviously much more effective in a more small area. So it it helps immensely, uh, but it doesn't take money out of politics. Right. And I when I saw what happened in uh, Costa Mesa's outcomes, I was asking my brain trust about what will how close are we in Irvine? Because Irvine is such a sprawling with so many so many X square miles annex that have just made it us. Uh, sort of people don't know each other from across the the expanse of this municipality. It almost feels like how big Anaheim is, and but Anaheim still is more square area, correct? Right. Yeah, and but the, but er the largest square and the largest actual physical population as well. Exactly. So, uh, but this person was saying, "There's we are so far away from getting districts in Irvine," and I'm thinking that will help. So let's talk then. Let's talk about this dark money because I um I wish that you had written your editorials or that were appearing in the Orange, uh, o the Voice of OC and some other platforms that that you were talking about the mailbox being a pipe bomb in our local government democracy. I, and I thought, when I first saw the title, I thought, when you said the mailbox was an issue, I thought, oh, it's not absentee ballots that are being counted late. It's it's the those flyers. So um, <laughs> I wish you wrote this earlier because Irvine was hit very hard. I collected so many flyers in 2012, and I planned, I held on to them for a long time because I knew I was going to want to wave them around when I would appear with the consequential decisions that were being made about the management and the ownership and the control of the great park. And so uh, we're well aware in Irvine of that California Homeowners Association, which is that little tiny uh, affiliation that's on all of these dark money kinds of uh, flyers that we're getting in there that we knew that were originating from Virginia. So it was super dark. So, but you felt compelled to, to write that. Tell, 
why don't you open up what your misgivings of what you experienced? Because it's a, it got, you had a lot of skin. You had Aitken skin in this game. <laughs> yes. Uh, my daughter, Ashley, uh, and uh, who was a former federal prosecutor, chair of the fair board, uh, mother Girl of Scout. three little girls, Girl Scout leader, et cetera, uh, but got attacked in a very, very uh, inappropriate and vicious and totally untruthful way. Um, well, again, it gets into the issue of uh, the fact that you can kind of fool people enough in a race where there were six or seven candidates, only two viable candidates, and so a lot of mischief went in, into the issue that people were sending out mailers uh, for another Democrat woman who had no chance of winning and all of her and had no money. And all of her flyers that were flooding into the mailbox were paid by uh, Harry Sudu and his supporters who ultimately won the election by one half of a percent and, and 478 votes. Wow. And that would have uh, never have happened in the, the outcome had there been a, then a runoff because if you look at all the other votes, you basically now have a mayor of one of the largest cities, 10th largest city in all of California, who became mayor based on 30% of the vote and a 478 vote victory. And if you look at all the other votes that were cast in the race, you see that the people who supported Ashley Aiken's position got substantially more votes and she would have handily won any kind of a runoff. So there's a mischief that they can play out there. And what really happens is, you talk about California Homeowners Association. We got hit with every kind of mailer you can think of yes. in the mailbox, including things like the Anaheim Neighborhood Association. Right. Uh, they had a uh, Republican being supported by the Anaheim Hills Democratic Club, even though he was a basically very conservative Republican. There is no such thing as an Anaheim Hills Democratic right. Club. So he put out a false mailer claiming to be a Democrat at the same time he was running. They were also putting out the mailers for uh, uh, one of the opponents being paid for by Mr. Sadu and his people. And all of this money could be tracked to the homo, uh, the big hotel owners in the resort district of Anaheim. How? How was that tracked? Well, it could only be tracked if you were going to... Uh, Go into the city clerk's filings? Well, uh, get all the filings, and the filings come in late, and the mailers come in late. Right. So there's really no way to track it. It all comes out after the election. But they were basically putting in just under $50,000. And think about a law that says if you give less than $50,000, you don't have to identify yourself. And you can call yourself the Resort Association. You can call yourself the, your Friendly Neighborhood Association. And all these major donors could put in le slightly less, $49,500, and not be identified as being the, the people who are actually putting out these mailers. And it was all about the capital cronyism that goes on in Anaheim, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to take a much more serious look at the district. So it isn't, it isn't just districts. And, and of course, they, uh, appropriately, the mayor runs citywide. Right. And that is, yes. that is the appropriate way right. to do it. But we have to look about how these elections are run because we are electing people who are represent the minority and who are being bought for, paid for, by all the major hotel owners using Anaheim as the example, and by Disneyland uh, and by the Angels. So all of the people who have business with the city are dictating who it is that's going to be making the decisions on behalf of the citizens. That's a, that's a very da a serious, dangerous thing for a democracy. So while we're having this very exclusive conversation about 
tracing the the money in campaign finance. So, I, and I I mean this suggestion as a very earnest one is hanging on to those flyers, and when people speak publicly before the council in Anaheim, bring out that flyer and say, you know, the, address that office holder and hyphenate them with that affiliation that to which that flyer is attributed and sort of make a, a showcase of making them own that that is an affiliation of theirs. Claudia, it's it's that, not theater. That that it is not theater. Even even uh, trial lawyers know a little bit about theater. Oh, you know more uh, better. But what I'm saying is, it's not theater. It's just, it's the truth. That's that's what I mean. <laughs> it's, but it's just honesty. Bring it and, out. And I can assure you that I have a marvelous library that I never want to have. Right. Of the you still have them. Were, oh, I kept them quite, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, they'll they will have a life of their own. I can promise you. Because I, actually, I, I had one where one of the city council candidates was implicated in uh, allowing child sex offenders to be using all of Irvine's parks, and I, I meant to, to drag that in there and sort of stare down the, the mayor at that time to show him that was his flyer. But it's, I, I think there's a place for these. I know the these. candidate you're talking about. Yes, of course you do. It's a terrible uh, thing that happened in that race as well. Yeah. That, a lot happened in 2012. But truth is important in politics, and we're just going to have to keep fighting it. And Yeah. And so it's a matter of where, first, it's the developing, all the constituents developing civic under civic knowledge and then the critical thinking. They have to know all those things. And I don't think people knew that your daughter was in that close of a race. I, I mean, I, we're, there were so many races to follow, and the city council race in Costa Mesa was sort of late coming to me, and so I I wasn't doing due diligence well, with following no, Anaheim's. That, that's not necessarily, well, I would never fault you for that. Because, uh, <laughs> well. In, in reality, that I think that happened to all local races. Let's face it, the the incredible national interest in Orange County because of the congressional races. That's what happened. Uh, really, uh, as Alberto Santana said of the Voice of OC, it sucked the air out of the room for every other political person running. Uh, and and that's just kind of a unique experience, but that that's okay. Look look at the result we got. But I wanted I wanted to bring that up though that the the ballot construction sort of hopping around that there was an interplay. I think the state assembly races benefited if you were a Democratic candidate, you benefited from that that play putting the the Democratic no congressional candidates. There's no question about it, and, and and frankly, our Republican friends recognize that. Yeah. Because they ran a Democrat who was really had no chance of winning because they knew that there was going to be a plurality of Democratic voters, and the only way they could win the election was to create a faux candidate, fake candidate, and draw votes away. Because they, there's no question in that there was a benefit to Ashley Aiken and others that we had these other exciting races that we're bringing out. And one of the nice things that happened in Anaheim yeah. is what one thing that Ashley was passionate about was fair wages for those hotel workers and the initiative that was put on the ballot. And one of the great things was, since an initiative is a yes or no, it doesn't clear multiple candidates, right. uh, we were able to win that race and those workers got the fair wages they deserve. So uh, there's hope and... Uh, uh, things will be exciting as we go forward. Well, uh, for those of you who've just joined us, the inestimable Wiley Aitken is my guest. 
this segment, and he's an Orange County trial lawyer and local rainmaker assessing the interesting developments in our local body politic post the 2018 midterm elections. So are you st- you still in the king-making business? You still uh, looking at, at the, <laughs> the talent moving up? I don't think I've ever been the king Oh, uh, sort of. I just do the best I can. Uh, <laughs> just a poor country lawyer. No, please. Um, but the reality is I am very involved, and, and, and particularly now I'm very excited about our new governor. Uh, and about the kind of a judicial appointments we can expect. But more, I am so interested in our new governor because of yeah. the California dream, because I represent, as many thousands do, the California dream. When I think about his speech, when I think about the fact that my parents and I, well, my parents brought me, From along our- with my uh, five brothers and, and, and sisters, a family of six, that we came into Orange County in 1955, the same year that uh, Walt, Uncle Walt built Disneyland. You did, wow. And I got to go to Santa Ana College for free, uh, no tuition. I got to go to Cal State Fullerton and paid $50 a semester. I was able to go local and live at home so I could handle the expenses uh, and first in my fam- family to go to college. And my folks came out here never having ever owned a home and we were able to buy a home in Garden Grove for $21,000, so the first time they ever owned a home. And so I and my family so benefited from the California dream, and it was all about, to a large degree, the openness of the educational system, the fact that we had arts in schools, even a school like Garden Grove High School had a complete and total arts program, and all of that has drifted slowly away, and... uh, I really am encouraged and excited about our new governor and what he's trying to do to return the California dream because it's all about the same issues that we're facing in Anaheim or anywhere else. Homelessness, affordable housing, educational system. This is what made us great. This is what can make us great again. But unless we can create clear and open and affordable access to all of those things, we won't be able recapture the California dream and uh, if you look at what he's done with his budget and what he said in his opening uh, inaugural address uh, the priorities are correct uh, now to keep the economy going and and be able to raise the money to accomplish them but the focus on it is exciting and I think everybody uh, you I and everybody else in Orange County should be excited about let's take Orange County back to where it used to be one, our, as you know, our kids now cannot even afford no. to live in the same county in which we live. They cannot. One, All bets are off with every aspect of the California dream with one seismic emergency. Okay. I don't, and so that's what complicates that whole dynamic that uh, Governor Brown setting aside the reserves and the uh, the extent to which infrastructure has been retrofitted and private sector uh, infrastructure and buildings have been retrofitted that I, I I wonder at what what kind of deficit is sort of in the is looming over us to address what the damage a seismic event is going to wreck on our state well um, <laughs> a major seismic event would create difficult problems across the board no matter what. I no matter just what. I was listening about what happened with Paradise and how Chico. Exactly. And how they won't even be able to rebuild Paradise and all. Uh, and whether to rebuild Malibu. So uh, we can't control 
huge tragedies and huge uh, events and seismic events. Uh, yes, we can we can minimize the impact, but let's face it: if we have a major, major California earthquake, uh, then it's going to have a major impact. That no matter what we do, so rather than worry about the the impact of a seismic event, what he the governor has done is said we have resources at this point, and what he's done very cleverly, in my opinion, yes. is he's set aside one-time amounts of money. What happens in government is People think if they get a certain amount of money, and it's always going to come every year. And if that were the case, then you could never sustain the budget he proposed. But what he did very cleverly and very intelligently okay. is set aside major money for uh, retrofitting, major money particularly for the schools, uh, the maintenance that's been neglected for years. Uh, I, I assume there's maintenance issues at UCI. There's maintenance of issues at Chapman University. Uh, but the public schools was where our focus should be. Not right. that I don't love Chapman and what I do there as, as chair of their board. But Cal State Fullerton, Santa Ana College, all the other community colleges, they need these one-time amounts of money to get them to get to catch up. And at that point, that money will go away. And then they're going to have to be sustained on what uh, – we do with our teachers what we do with the other money that's being available. And if you see everything that he's done, it focuses on early child care, kindergarten for the kids, and support for the college kids once we've taken them through K through 12 and into college. I had all of that support. I had all of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and if we, that's where the California dream lies and where we should return to. And there was, we, you were, you're alluding to it, that there such a pent-up demand for these kinds of basic services that Governor Brown was just stingy about his two terms to, to fully take up. Well, he was very fiscally conservative, and I guess you can't be uh, criticized too harshly for that. It's a double-edged. Uh, but you really need to move forward at the same time you're planning for a rainy day. I, rainy days are fine. We have a rainy day today. Uh, but we don't see all that many rainy days, so let's not get carried away about a rainy day fund. Let's have a rainy day fund, but let's not make that the focus. Let, it ma let that make a small part of what we're doing. And we have to think boldly. We have to think about going forward. And, and there's risks and chances and everything. But I'd certainly risk the return to California dream like uh, Gavin Newsom's going to rather than uh, collect acorns. Okay. I... There's a couple of things I still want to see if we could shoehorn them in here. In, we, when I was asking you about building the farm team around uh, in Orange County, do you see any Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes in Orange County? Uh, we had one. Uh, her name was Loretta Sanchez, and, and that was in 1996. Oh, that what you think? Uh, so I think we do have some very good people. Uh, uh, and I think when you say the farm team... I think we need to identify those individuals, and that one thing about the re, that the Republicans do very well is they are been very paid a lot of attention to local government. They yep. put all their places in every office you can think of where people are not thinking in a partisan way, and th and that's okay. Uh, we, uh, Ashley had a lot of Republican support, so it's all right to uh, not. We don't have to label everything Democrat Republican. What we need to do is more think about policy and programming. And so what we see here is we need to get much more involved and build that bench and at the local level. But so far, we've let them steal all these local seats. And I have to say, my focus has always been nationally and more on the state. 
I learned a great lesson in working with my daughter this last couple That's of where years. It, that frankly, yeah. I'd like to take all of my energy and put it into local politics because to me, at this point, I'd rather see us build that bench so every time there's an opening, we have strong leaders who can step into that breach. Well, and speaking of local races, now we've got our the law enforcement and uh, the county board of supervisors that's shuffled a great deal that now we have a new district attorney and we have then an uh, a new sheriff is there what do you see going into that leadership well that's interesting uh, i know todd spitzer quite well uh todd is very talented very intelligent um i would hope that todd will focus on doing one thing that is really um and I'm not, I'm not getting, uh, sure I'm very optimistic to tell you the truth. I think, yeah. Uh, but we have politicized the DA's office and we've politicized the sheriff's office. He's politicized that has to, politics. That has to stop. Right. Uh, we used to have a DA who was focused on sure, solely being the DA. Uh, and Rakakis was a failure in that regard and a failure in many respects. Uh, Todd has the talent and the ability and the skill to be a very, very good district attorney. I'm hopeful that he doesn't use that office to start endorsing candidates, uh, start endorsing in partisan races, misusing the cloud of that office to promote himself politically solely. I really believe that there's a hope for Todd in that regard because he does have the talent and he does have the skill and he has the ability. And if he reaches out and stays nonpartisan, I think it could be a great district attorney. And if he focuses on being a great district attorney, then ultimately if he decides he's going to run for attorney general or someplace else, that's fine. But One not thing use it as a political power to kind of dictate to the county and, and, uh, and create the same mess uh, that we had in the uh, horrible performance of Sandy Hutchins in the sheriff's department. Well, I think you're intimating a, a very large pivot in his conduct in the body politic and when i think of it let's call it the todd spitzer buffet i only see red meat <laughs> well you may be right uh but, but what i'm saying is this he has the ability and the yeah. skill and i think that people can change to some degree and i uh uh, Todd at one time was a registered Democrat. So the reality really? is that he shouldn't be a Democrat, he shouldn't be a Republican. He should be a professional prosecutor. Oh, that's a we, should. Though. We have yeah. a great, U, uh, Ashley was a U.S. attorney. We have a U.S. attorney in Los Angeles that nobody knows what he, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat, and nobody cares because he's the U.S. attorney. He has a job to do. Right. And if Todd catches that idea, uh, he's very smart. And if he's smart, he won't go red meat, and if he's smart, uh, he'll use this as a unique opportunity in his political career. And I know he's smart. Right. It's just that where at every turn I've seen. So I, that, that pivot is a, I, it's a big if, Claudia, I think. Claudia, I'm not surprised at your concern and uh, the, the doubts you're raising. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I, I have more questions than we have time. We've uh, actually run over a little bit our segment, but I, I would like for you to come back though, and we can take some other measures. Um, there, we didn't get a chance to talk about the special election to replace Todd Spitzer's Orange County Board of Supervisor, and you I want the one that Loretta Sanchez is going to win. That she's she is, <laughs> well, and I'm going to ask about. I just but stuck that in. She might be at the Women's March, and I'm wondering if she's taking advantage of all those things. And I'll, that's the question She'll I'm going to get. She'll be at the get. Women's March, and I was at the Women's March uh, last. Are you going to be there? I am. Ha- 
I I was absolutely fascinated and blown away by it. I just thought it was the most amazing thing, and uh, I would not miss that for the world. Well, that's that is it is quite a remarkable event, and it's getting when you get to the third annual, you can feel how institutionalized it's getting. That's for it, sure. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you, Wiley Aitken, for being a part of the Ask Leader. Thank you for coming back to the show. I enjoyed and I will come back at any time. All right, that's you're, you're on. That was Wiley Aiken, Orange County trial lawyer and local rainmaker, I say, as, as assessing our developments here in our local body politic. We'll be back on with Jennifer Boyton, who's going to talk about her role in organizing the Orange County Women's March January 19th, this Saturday, 10 to 1. <laughs> Thanks for staying tuned. That's Charlie Hayden and the Liberation Music Orchestra's track, Lift Every Voice. Thank you for staying tuned, and welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Jennifer Boyton, a social justice advocate and carrying in utero not one but two beneficiaries of her life of advocacy. Most recently, she led the county's largest public sector employee union, the Orange County Employees Association, representing approximately 18,000 workers in Orange County and served on the executive board of the California Labor Federation, uh, representing more than 2.1 million workers across California. She writes a bi-weekly column in the opinion pages of the Orange County Register about issues affecting working people. Recently, she was the host of a community forum featuring workers from Disneyland and Senator Bernie Sanders highlighting poverty wages at the resort and advocating for fair wages, wages there. We talked about that, too, in the first segment of this successful initiative to establish the minimum wage in Anaheim. And she's one of the many women standing together this year to help organize the 2019 Orange County Women's March. Jennifer stepped down from her role at the Orange County Employees Association in uh, this month. She's focusing on the proto-activist twins that I mentioned and expected next month. Prior to her joining the labor work, she was an investigative reporter at the Orange County Register and a product of Garden Grove. She graduated from Pepperdine University and is a graduate of the National Labor Leadership Initiative, an initiative of the Work Institute of Council Cornell and ILR and the AFL-CIO. She comes to us today from Santa Ana. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jennifer Boyton. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having me. And thank you for the uh, exceptional conversation with Wiley Aiken. Um, what a what a leader in this county. Well, I'm what insights you guys were able to discuss. Okay, and so that pairing kind of gives us a chance to sort of zero in on, on uh, other specifics of the march. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, our running over isn't going to totally uh, undo what we're going to try to do. So first, let's think in, in sort of a broad stroke are there what are the headwinds or the tailwinds going into this march from the developments since last year's march jennifer i think orange county is the place to be this year from a national level ah. um, with respect to the women's march and just social movement building if you look at what we were able to accomplish from last year's women's march until this year's march 
I think this is a success story. And this year's march um, is an opportunity for all of the women who left last year's march and who decided together we're not just going to take to the streets and focus on our solidarity as women um, and, and really treating women's rights as human rights. But then we're going to take that ethos and that energy and bring it to our communities and talk to our neighbors and talk to our fellow mothers in the schools and talk to our coworkers and march to the ballot box. And if you look at what we were all able to accomplish this year in November um, with respect to candidates who support women um, and and really creating a sea change here in Orange County. Uh, We have a lot to celebrate this year uh, going into the Women's March, and we have a lot of work to do. And so I think this march is just going to be incredible um, and and an incredible way to continue that momentum that we've been able to build here. We've been an example for the country, I think, and uh, and this year is going to be no different. So the demographics have been a conversation about uh, uh, involved in the organizing of the Women's March around the U.S. How is Orange County addressing this inclusionary aspect? Yeah, well, you know, one thing um, to just point out about the Women's March in general um, since the very beginning of the Women's March, there was the National March, and then there were sister marches that took place all across the country. And those sister marches, by and large, are independent of the national organization. So Orange County's Women's March has always been um, an independent march. Uh, We've been happy to march in solidarity with our sisters across the country. But we're really proud of that because we have an incredibly diverse community. And that diversity has been at the table throughout the planning of each of these three marches. And I think only expanded over the past three years. So this year... We have more than 30 different organizations uh, representing all sorts of different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, coming together to decide what this march should be. I think for those who were able to attend last year's march, um, you saw that reflected in the programming that um, that took place before the march and then at the end of the march. We had, you know tons of speakers from all different types of organizations and walks of life um, who were able to rally the crowd and talk about what mattered most to them. And this year, um, the organizers collectively decided to do something even a little bit, um, I think, more exciting, uh, which is to bring all of that inclusivity into the march. And so that's reflected in the slogan for the march this year. It's the Orange County Women's March, Our Movement our time. Um, And if you're interested in participating in the march, you can actually go to ocwomensmarch.org and download one of those Our Movement uh, signs. And instead of Our Time, it says Our Movement, Our, and then there's a blank, you can reflect what it is that brings you to the march. So there's space for everybody, every interest, every every desire that that pulls people to the streets. there, there's an opportunity for that to be reflected. And also, uh, this year, something that's a little bit unique oh. is that in order to create space and time for all of that, um, throughout the march, there's going to be just a lot more visually, musically, artistically that's taking place from a whole host of different communities. So, for example, there will be a um, along the march route, uh, tribute to Martin Luther King Jr., 
you know, given the fact that this is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, there will be workers talking about equal pay. There will be all sorts of issues that um, that that are reflected within the march. There will be music and art projects. Um, so there's really a space for everybody um, that really truly represents the full breadth and diversity of our unique community in Orange County. Well, Jennifer, I just want to put in a little bit of a uh, an advisory that I rather people didn't download the the standard poster. I want to see those individual original messages that people put on there. The, I that's like the coolest thing about marches is what what people would say. <laughs> So, oh, absolutely. You know, they're, absolutely. They're great. And the other thing I noticed about last year's march was the A-list, like the local A-list, that they they didn't just leave after they spoke. They were working the crowd and stayed with the crowd the whole time. So it's a it's a sort of a festival this march. So I, I, I really uh, think people are going to get take a lot out more than they uh, had envisioned. And so I wanted to uh, bring up when we're talking about this march, so I, I, it kind of jarred me when I saw a caption to one of the L.A. Times pictures in advance of the march, and they used the word protesters. So what's, and I guess that my jarring reaction was maybe something that's palpable elsewhere. So what, what is the word choice for who shows up at these marches? I believe that this march is a gathering of neighbors and community members who are engaging in civic activism. The first march was so beautiful because I remember turning the corner, you know, having been grown up in Orange County, grew up in Garden Grove, um, and being involved in uh, in activism here for most of my life, I never thought we would see 20,000 people take to the streets in Orange County. (laughs) And turning the corner to see mothers and children and husbands and, you know, high school students and grandmothers and everybody in between, many of whom had first, for the very first time, ever taken place in some sort of collective action, to feel that power, to be present with other people, to recognize that you're not alone and feeling like there needs to be change, and that there are other people you can partner with for change, to me, that's what the march is. Um, It's not a bunch of angry protesters. It's people who come together asserting a value. And it's a value that in Orange County desperately needs to be um, to be asserted because we know our county's history. We, we know that we come from a place where the John Birch Society was born. We know that, you know, right. over the years there have been Ku Klux Klan um, groups that have done protests here. We know that the Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, recently identified Orange County as an incubator for hate groups. And so we all obviously oppose um, and protest uh, hate. But what we're coming together for is something even greater than that. We're coming together with a shared vision for positivity and improvement in our community. And we've seen over these past three years the power of that solidarity and what we've already been able to accomplish. It has been largely the women who came out to this march tens of thousands of women coming out, coming together, and then taking action in their community that have been making the changes that we're seeing today. So those of you who just joined us, my guest is Jennifer Boyton, a social justice advocate and a co-organizer at this year's third annual now, Orange County Women's March to be held this Saturday, January 19th, 
10 in the morning till 1 p.m. ish in downtown Santa Ana. I think that's still, you're getting permits still taken out, so we can't give the exact downtown location, but it's it will be very, very clear on the website, folks. So let's do a, a lightning round of who's what kinds of guests are going to be speaking. You, I mean, you mentioned a little bit in a sweeping way, but you've got lots of new candidates that were uh, successful, and you've got a special election candidate. So give us a quick run of what the guests are that we're going to be treated to at the march. Yes, and just so everybody knows, the starting location we can share okay. which is on the corner of Flower and Santa Ana Boulevard in downtown Santa Ana, 10 a.m. Um, last year, one of the things that became very clear in terms of feedback from the public at the march was that people wanted to march, you know? Right. We got started, had a great program, and um, but people really wanted to get to get focused on marching. And so the program this year is going to be much shorter and a lot more of the activity will be focused within the march. That being said, we have been able to elect a ton of women <laughs> into leadership in this county. Um, and then we have, you know, as, as Wiley talked about, right. Loretta Sanchez, who's running for um, the Orange Board Can of Supervisors seat. Um, and I know she'll be there along with a number of other people, um, as well as the future leaders of tomorrow. We've got high school students um, and college students who will be involved in uh, in the short presentation that takes place before the march. We're still working out the details of what exactly that's going to look like, but know that you're not going to come to the march and get a bunch of long speeches from politicians. Rather, this is about sharing in our solidarity, and we are extremely, this is breaking news here, we haven't talked about oh, this publicly to okay. anybody, yes. um, but we do have one very special speaker who we are so excited um, about kicking us off uh, in the march, and that is Dolores Huerta. Wow. Many people know, um, you know, was one of the uh, brain. She, she and Cesar Chavez worked together to organize the farm workers. What's so remarkable about that is that she was a woman organizing and lobbying for justice for workers in the late 50s and early 60s, broke through all sorts of barriers, and has spent really the remainder of her career fighting for not only worker justice, but to bring women to the table. Um, and so we couldn't think of a more appropriate wow. uh, person to kick us off on the march, somebody who is really steeped in um, organizing and community activism, lifting up the voices of everyone together. So she'll be here, um, and she'll be helping kick us off on the march That's on, a, on Saturday. That's a phenomenal booking, and thank you for giving us this breaking item here on Ask a Leader. I appreciate that. Well, I, I just wanted, as we're wrapping this all the way up today, I wanted to give everybody a, a reminder, though, that it's important that we need noses. Um, you need, I'm speak, carrying your water for you, Jennifer. That it's important that for people to check in on the website so everybody's numbers accounted for so we get accurate numbers because that's that's part of this whole project is to to show how many people are a part of all of this absolutely so thank you so much for for that oh yeah orange county women's org is where people can do that and you get all kinds of details about you know encouraging the carpool what to wear bringing lots of uh you know hydrating and all that kind of a thing and turning out so i will meet you i'll have my press credentials and i will maybe i get to talk to dolores let's miss huertas to me uh, but i will see one and all at flower and santa Ana boulevard 10 o'clock on this very upcoming Saturday. Jennifer Boyton, thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. Oh, that's okay. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for all that you do, Claudia. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Jennifer Boyton was my guest, and she is an organizer and a 
for the Orange County's third annual Women's March held this Saturday. Next week, I'm going to have on National Science Foundation and UCI Center for Chemistry at the space time limit. It's called Castle for short. My guests will be the outreach extraordinaire Danielle Watt and researchers Kate Rodriguez and Howard Weatherspoon about recruiting underrepresented minorities to STEM research, giving them the full hour. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Oh.